We pick it up in Acts chapter 11, uh, and, and it's in a continuation, really, of Acts chapter 10, where you know, the Lord had uh, sent an angel to Cornelius. He says, I want you to get, you know, go and call for Peter, who's uh, down there. And then you know, the Lord uh, spoke to Peter in a vision regarding the, the food that he was no longer to call it unclean or common because God was doing a work there. And then the Spirit told him to go. When he goes to there, you know, all the people end up getting saved. It's the Gentile conversion. God's opening the door. And so all that happens. And then what happens is word goes to Jerusalem. And so when Peter goes to Jerusalem, you know, he has to explain this to them. And so we pick it up. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so the apostles and brethren in Jerusalem heard it, you know, through the grace vine. Somehow they got the report that the Gentiles, which is a reference to all those who are non-Jew, that they had received really the spirit of God, salvation from God. And I, and I like the way it's worded right here. It's put that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. You know, and it's so important for us to see the Bible for what it is, that really it's our only hope of salvation because what happens is the Spirit of God will take the Word of God to conceive a child of God. The Spirit of God will take the Word of God and create us and change us and form us into the image of God. And that's why we have to receive this for what it is. It's not the Word of man. It's not the Word of Manny. It's not the Word of Peter. It's the Word of God. And that was instrumental. That was pivotal. That's why they were such a healthy city of Christians because they took this for what it was. They received it as it was the word of God. You know, as Paul would later write in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also works effectively in you who believe. And so it's the truth in the land of lives, and it's, it's alive. It's not just a, a, an orthodox, you know, objective word. It's a subjective word in the sense that it works in us, right? And so they heard in Jerusalem that these guys had received the word of God. They got saved. They received the Spirit. And so we read in verse 2, Acts chapter 11, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, hey, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so those of the circumcision were the Jews. No doubt they were questioning everything that went down. But here it's expressed in the fact that Peter went in and he actually ate with the Gentiles. Now, if you go back real quick to chapter 10, look what we read in verse 28. You know, Peter said this to them when he actually did go there to Cornelius and his family. He said, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. And so that was their mindset, you know. They couldn't go over their pad, hang out with them. They couldn't break bread with them. They were unclean. Now, now let me just say this, because we got to know this. That was never biblical. God never taught them that. That was never God's teaching 
It was only the Jewish thinking, and really it was the mentality of the world, really. And so we're going to see later, even Peter struggles with this, and Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians. But to eat with someone, it was a huge thing. And so when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, they're, ha- they're contending with him. They're saying, hey, we heard that you went in to uncircumcised men. The Jews had come to a place in their theology that they believed that such a thing would defile them before God and make them unclean. You know, and, and this is a hard point, not just in Jewish history, I'll just say in history, racism. You know, Tacitus, not in the Bible, but he was this historian. He said this about the Jews. He said the Jews are extremely loyal toward one another and always ready to show compassion, but toward every other people, they feel only hate and enmity. Now, that's a heavy, that's a heavy quote. It's a heavy accusation from a non-biased historian. But it's interesting because later that's confirmed in the scriptures in the book of Acts chapter 22. You guys remember when Paul was sharing his testimony and, uh, you know, he's talking about everything that the Lord had done. And then as he's sharing his testimony with all these Jews, he's speaking to them even in the Hebrew language. It says in Acts 21, uh, verse 21 and 22, Acts 22, 21 and 22, Paul is sharing what Christ said to him. And then he said to me, He's saying, Jesus said this to me, and Paul is relaying these words to them. Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And it says, and they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And so just to kind of give you the, the background, just to give you the, the, the understanding you know, that was their heart towards the Gentiles. A lot of the Jews, they'd wake up in the morning and they would pray, Lord, thank you, I'm not a woman. Thank you, I'm not a Gentile. They actually believed, some of them believed that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. They were so far from what God had called them to be. You know, it's taken for granted today that the Gentiles can become Christians, but you guys got to understand the the, the way that this transition went on, it's a radical revelation and even a revolution for the church back then. You know, and so in looking at this, those of the circumcision, they contended with Peter, who then defends himself by simply blaming God. He said, it wasn't me, I didn't do this. It was God who did this. And it's God who loves everybody. Every skin color, every race, every nationality, those from Jerusalem who think maybe they're good enough or religious enough, or those who, in, who live in Antioch, one of the vilest places on planet Earth, God loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved. And so Peter, then he blames it on God, and all he does is tell the story. Look at verse 4, but Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, which is, uh, you might want to underline that, I was praying, man, I was doing something good, and he was hungry, but he was there, it says, in a trance, and I saw vision. You know, that that trance is like an entrance into a different dimension, right? And and he said, this vision was an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. 
When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now you guys know the Jewish diet, according to Leviticus, was a kosher diet. Certain animals with certain hooves and just different characteristics. They could eat, they couldn't eat. And so, you know, now things are, are changing, right? And so he says in verse 8, But I, I said, No, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And so we talked about this before. He gets his vision three times. That's uh, by the word of two or three witnesses. You know, every testimony will be established. God is really changing things. And it's not just food. It's not just diet. It's people. It's people. That's what it's all about. And so as he's there, he's thinking about this whole vision. It says at that very moment, notice in verse 11, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And then the Spirit told me. Now, notice it's the Holy Spirit, right? He told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And so it's angels appearing to Cornelius. It's Jesus speaking to Peter. It's the Holy Spirit telling him to go, doubt nothing. And as he goes, he takes six men. So now there's going to be seven witnesses. And so not only do you have the three that, that's spoken of earlier that establishes the word, in, Ro in the Roman world, you needed seven witnesses. And so now they got them all, right? It says in verse 13, and, and, he, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And so Peter gives a little bit of what Cornelius had gone through, how he you know, received a message from an angel. And it's so cool. I don't know about you, but I like the way that he says, you know, you're going to call this guy. He's going to share with you a message. And you and your whole family, your whole family will get saved. I just think that is so cool, you know. I pray that, that God works in, in, our, in our spouses and in our children, grandchildren like that. And just spreads, right? And so, uh, you know, Peter's just relaying the story. And notice what happens next in verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. You guys remember in Acts chapter 2 when, you know, the Holy Spirit came and, you know, it was the rushing mighty wind and on top each one there was flames of fire and they all spoke in tongues. Now, it doesn't mean that, that everyone who gets saved is going to speak in tongues, but what God was doing here was he was making it evident without a shadow of a doubt. Because here's the thing, you know, when people come forward, you don't really know for sure if they're saved. You know, they might pray that prayer or they might go to church or whatever. But what God is saying right here is, I want you to know that they were genuinely saved. He wanted to give them that sign. And so, you know, as they were there, Peter's just preaching. They don't do an altar call. They don't, you know, have them say a prayer. 
nothing. It's right there. When they hear the, the message that God loves you, that he, that he wants you to go to heaven, that you know, we're sinful, and if we die in our sins, we won't make it, but Jesus Christ died and, and rose again, and all you have to do right there, right where you're at, is believe, and you'll be saved. You know, that's a trip going to Israel, and uh, one of the things, and I, I know we've heard this before, but it's just heartbreaking when you, uh, when you look at the Jews. We love the Jews. We love them. But it's, it's a tragedy, you know, like our tour guide. So much information. He knew the Bible. No offense, but probably better than a lot of you guys do, man. And, and you know, but it's so sad because they're still waiting for their Messiah. They're still waiting for their, their Messiah. They, they believe that he's going to come. And the reason why they didn't accept Jesus is because they were looking for a political king. They were looking for someone to deliver them from the Roman rule. And we heard this from his own mouth. He was saying, that's the reason we didn't accept Jesus is because we wanted someone to deliver us from Rome. And, and for us now as Christians, we're so blessed because, no, I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want someone who will deliver me politically. I want someone who will deliver me spiritually. I don't want someone who's going to come and save me temporally. I want someone who's going to save me eternally. I don't want someone who can just deliver me from the rule of the Romans. I want someone who can deliver me from the rule of sin. And that's what Jesus has given to us, you know? And, and when you go to Israel, again, you love the Jews, but, you know, to me, it's just there's the blindness there. They can't see something that is so simple for us to see when we read our Bibles, that all you have to do is believe. That all those sacrifices of the Old Testament where they killed all those animals, they were all pointing to Jesus. All the, the feast days, everything in the Old Testament, you can open it up anywhere and you can preach Jesus and Him crucified. They don't, they don't see that. For us, it's so amazing. And now we know that, that we're forgiven. And so as Peter's preaching, man, just people right there and then, they get saved. And Peter says in verse 16, And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, verse 11. You know, if you had to choose, which would you rather be baptized with, water or the Holy Spirit? <laughs> the Holy Spirit, huh? And that's what ends up happening right there. And so in verse 17, I therefore... If therefore, Peter says, he just tells them what happens. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, notice that's all it is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? You know, and, and this is an awesome story here that Luke reiterates. And just in case, you know, as a quick side note here, he takes up a lot of room. Now, in those days, they didn't have copy and paste, right? <laughs> and they would use this papyrus paper by the time they got to this uh, juncture in history. Very expensive. And so you, were, you, were, you, would ver you would limit what you're going to write. But Luke writes almost the whole thing verbatim from chapter 10. Uh, here's a scroll. It's probably going to be the book of Acts, 30 feet long, and he takes that much, man. He just says, you know what? I have to tell this all over again. And you wonder why. And the reason is because this is so important. 
And here's the thing for us, you guys. Here's the thing. That not only can anyone be saved, but God wants everyone to be saved. And what we find right here is that the Holy Spirit is emphasizing this because it is so important in our hearts. You know, Peter here tells us what happens, and he says, who was I that I could withstand God? And so we read in verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You know, and that was God's intention all along. But, you know, tragically, rebelliously, the Jews didn't realize that the reason God chose them was not just for them, but that they should be a light to the world, you know? And, and just real quick, before we dive into that, I pray that you would know that. You're like, why did, you know, God chose me, I'm saved, I'm free, I'm forgiven, I have this peace, shalom, and then there you are, and you're just enjoying your Christianity. And that's cool, man. But understand, the reason he chose you is not just for you, not just so that you could be saved, not just so that you can enjoy life. It's so that God would use your life to save others. And you plant seeds, and you water seeds, and you serve in the ministry. There's a lot of people, unfortunately, in church, and I, I don't, you know, no offense, man, but I don't see them serving. Sometimes they're complaining. Sometimes different things are going on. But it's like, man, are you really passionate about the Lord? Are you serving the way that you should be serving? Well, I've been waiting on the Lord. Well, you've been waiting on the Lord for 25 years, bro. (laughs) Get busy. You know when David got in trouble? When he took himself out of the battle. That's when he got in trouble. And so what I've learned is that I have to be busy about my father's business, right? In Luke chapter 2, I mean Luke chapter 1, when Jesus was there and Mary and Joseph were looking for him, they had lost him. He says, didn't you guys know I need to be busy about my father's business? And here he is, man, just a young teenager. So the Jews thought, we're saved, cool, we get to enjoy it. But listen, it's not just for you. God chose them so that they could be a light to the world. And it happened in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. It says, I will bless those, God says, who bless you, speaking to Abraham, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jews. In the very beginning, he said, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so, you know, through the Jews, we got the scriptures, and more importantly, probably through the Jews, we got our Savior. And so it was never intended to be simply for the Jews. It was for all the families of the earth. And as you read the Old Testament, you see various Gentiles who were reached and saved. And when you go through the scriptures, you find Isaiah who spoke often about the Gentiles being saved. For example, Isaiah 11.10, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. You know, same thing in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, speaking of Jesus, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. We see the same thing in Isaiah 60, verse 3. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so, 
you know, we don't understand why the Jews, for whatever reason, thought it was exclusively for them. Uh, when you read the Bible, even in the very beginning when the nation of uh, Israel was established through the lineage of Abraham, God says it's supposed to be for everybody. The whole wide world. That's God's heart. You know, Jesus later would speak on this in John 10, verse 16. He said, Another sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Now, not just the Jews. I have other sheep. Also, I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And we see that later, even in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And so, you know, as we're reading our scriptures right here, we're learning that this is not just for the Jews. It was an open door for the Gentiles. You know, part of the problem, I think, is something that we might not be able to relate to as much because here's the thing, you guys. Back then, everyone, for the most part, believed that deities were localized, that there were certain gods for certain nations, and every nation had their own god. They really hadn't captured the truth that there is only one god for all nations, right? And so you had the god of the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and you know, the Egyptians had their God and, you know, the Jews did. And so that was really the mindset back then. But now God's revelation of salvation to all is starting to unfold. There's only one God and he loves us and he made a way. And we are to be busy about his business, going out and winning souls. No partiality with God. And such simplicity to be saved. All you have to do is believe. And so there's changes in the church dealing with salvation, kind of. And then there's changes in the church dealing now with location. And you might think, well, now it's a completely different topic. But you know what? They're intertwined. Because look what we read next in verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And so now he talks about these guys. I remember back in Acts chapter 7 and 8 when they were persecuted. They go and they're preaching the word, but notice it says to the Jews only. To the Jews only, again, because that was their mentality. But verse 20 says, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, here we see that some of them preached to the Hellenists. And if you have a New Living Translation, it says to the Gentiles. So the first verse, 19, is they're preaching to the Jews. Now you got guys that are preaching to the Gentiles. And what we find is that this is a monumental movement in the history of the church. For the first time, Christians actively proselytized the Gentiles. Now, to proselytize means to convert. or It's an attempt to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another. And now we find for the first time in the Bible that they are pursuing the Gentile in order to proselytize. You know, in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, we saw the Samaritans were reached, but they were part Jewish. 
And we also read about the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah 53 on his way home after he had visited Jerusalem. But again, that was his own initiative. It wasn't something that necessarily the church was aggressively pursuing. But here, the church was the initiator. And we have for the first time the disciples taking the message directly to the Gentiles. And you know, um, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but do you ever just go out, like to share the Lord? Do you ever just, you know, maybe make a phone call or send a text message or an email? I'm not talking about stuffing it down someone's throat. I'm talking about you going out and just say, let's reach out. You know, I think that the more you love Jesus, the more you love people, and the more you will share your faith. And the less you love Jesus, the less you love people, and you probably don't even remember the last time you shared with someone. You know, we read this right here, and we're learning, man, this is God's heart. This is what's going on. He's reaching the Gentiles now. And of all places, Antioch. Might as well put Las Vegas right there, man, in your margin. You know, there were 16 cities uh, then called Antioch, but this was Antioch of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind only Rome and Alexandria. It was a commercial center near the mouth of the Orontes River, only 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. So, you know, when you study history, you realize that this was a great location, you know, to have a city, right? But it was a vile city with gross immorality and ritual prostitution as part of its temple worship of the goddess Daphne. You know, one Roman writer said that Antioch of Syria was so corrupt that it was impacting Rome for the bad more than 1,300 miles away. That's how bad this city was. You know, when you look at this city, Antioch had a population of 500,000 people, which is huge back then. The main street, and so when you go to Israel, it's kind of cool because you get to see what the main streets look like. Uh, I think it's called a cardio. Um, but, you know, the main street uh, of Antioch was four miles long, and the whole street was covered in marble with these marble columns going all along the way. It was the only city in the ancient world, check this out, the only city in the ancient world that had as, as, in, in its streets lights that they would light at night. So think about that. Today we go, you know, down the streets, we got lights everywhere, there, right? Back then, they didn't have that. And so you hear, you picture this big main street and with all these lights, right, at night, which of course is when a lot of the immorality took place. And Warren Wiersbe said Antioch was a wicked city, perhaps second only to Corinth. And so Antioch was famous for her chariot racing, for a kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure, which went on literally day and night. But most of all, she was famous for the worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles out and the legend was that Daphne was a mortal maid with whom Apollo fell in love with, and he pursued her, and for her safety, the gods turned her into a laurel bush. And so the priestesses of the temple of Daphne were sacred prostitutes, and nightly they would go out into the laurel groves, and the pursuit was reenacted by the worshipers and priestesses as they would have orgies in these groves. 
I mean, I, don't, I think you've got to know a little bit about Antioch. It was just a crazy, corrupt, immoral city. Warren Wisby said, not only, however, was an effective church built in Antioch, but it became the church that sent Paul out to win the Gentile world for Christ. You guys are going to see, you know, because up to this point, you know, it's Jerusalem and that's a location. But now God is moving in such a way where it's going to be Antioch and they become a launching pad and they send missionaries out to the ends of the earth. And as I was reading that, you guys, I was just thinking, you know, of some of you, how you're, you know, you're just all messed up, right? Some of you guys here, you're just, you're just thrashed, man. You're jacked up. You know, maybe even as a Christian, you know, you're like, man, I fall so short and I blew it again today and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the enemy has a way of taking what's clean and calling it common and unclean. And, and all I got to say is that God can do anything with your life. If he can do this with Antioch, then he can do this with you. If he can do this with Saul, then he can do this with you. I mean, such a, an awful place. Such an awful person, perhaps. But look what God did. Not only did he save them, but he used them in such an amazing way. It seems almost unbelievable. Definitely incredible, but nonetheless, it is true. So amazing that in a city like this, that Christianity took the great stride forward to become the religion of the world. And we need only think of that to be reminded that no situation or person is hopeless. And that might not just be for you. That might be for a loved one that you're thinking of. For somebody that you think, well, they're too far gone. No, they're not. Because you can look at Antioch, right? And so we read next in verse 21, as they're there and they're preaching the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles. It says in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. That's 300 miles. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. You know, and when you look at this, man, it's so cool. God usually doesn't necessarily hand it to us, but if we're willing to share with others, he does give us his hand. And hand in hand, as we're working, we're going to see people get saved. I'm telling you, and I know a lot of times we're like, ah, I don't know if I can do it. Yes, you can. You know, you go out and you preach the gospel, people start getting saved. Just as we see here in Antioch, people in great numbers believed and they turned to the Lord. So the church in Jerusalem, once again, they hear what's going on through the grace vine, grace vine the Gentiles are being saved, and they send, so they send Barnabas out to them. And you guys know Barnabas, man, this guy was so cool. His name, they gave him the nickname. It means son of encouragement. And he went. And some say, well, the reason they sent Barnabas was because he was also from Cyprus, and there were some Christians there from Cyprus. But I don't think that's really the main reason. I think just the main reason is because he was such a blessing, man. This guy was such a blessing. He was an encouragement. And, uh, you know, when you look at him, he was a good man. It's interesting the Bible would say that about somebody because most of us, when we read the Bible, we say, well, no one's good, not one. And it's true, apart from Christ. 
But when Jesus starts working in your life, then you can, honestly, you can actually say, man, he's a good man. It's a good sister right there, man. What God has done, that was Barnabas, right? Full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, and God was working out his plan. And so it's at this point, as the church is growing, that Barnabas recognizes he needs help. And in verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples, check this out, it's so cool, were first called Christians in Jerusalem. No, I'm just joking. You guys got your Bibles? You got your ready, tomatoes? You ready to stone me? Yeah, isn't it so cool? That's why you have to have your Bibles, man. You got to check and make sure that I'm telling you what is there. They were first called Christians where? In Antioch. Isn't that amazing? I mean, to me, that's amazing. And some say it was a derogatory statement. Others say it wasn't. We don't know. All I know is that's where they were first called Christians. And it's still, that's still us today, huh? We're described as Christians. And so at this, at this point that Barnabas goes, and a lot of things happen here. Let me give you five things that happen in verse 25 and 26. Number one, uh, that Barnabas goes looking for Saul. Now, that's really cool. The Greek word is only used twice, both by Luke and the other time it's used is in his gospel. You guys remember when uh, uh, Jesus uh, got split up from the family, Mary and Joseph were heading home, the Passover, and they have to go back and they're searching for Jesus? I mean, can you imagine, have any of you guys ever lost your kids? Some of you guys here are terrible parents, anyone here? <laughs> No, I mean, you know, but I, mean, I know I have, and it's an awful feeling, and you're, and you're searching for your child. That's what, um, that's what Barnabas is doing here. I mean, he's desperately looking for Saul. Now, a lot of people will give you their theories about what Saul was doing all this time. It's probably been about nine years. And some will tell you he was planning churches and doing miracles and busy about ministry. And if I had to guess, I'd say that's probably a good possibility, but we don't know. I mean, for all we know, maybe he wasn't. Maybe after he had gotten, you know, kind of kicked out of Jerusalem, who knows? Maybe he thought, you know what, I can't be used. I mean, it's just not going to work. We don't know. All, all I know is that you don't hear about anything, about what he's doing this whole time. For nine years, he's like not, you know, he's silent. But then Barnabas comes along. And Barnabas goes searching for him as if he was a, a child lost by a parent. And he finds him. And God uses him. You know, and I don't know, maybe you know someone who needs to be sought after. You know, what a difference Barnabas made in the life of Saul. That's one thing we see here. Secondly, we see the way that they were just teaching the people. You know, for a whole year, they're gathering together and they're just being taught. That's why, you know, we like to do that as a church. Number three, the first place they're called Christians. And uh, the, the word Christian, some people say it's like Christ, some will say a little Christ. But literally what the word means, it means uh, uh, the, the belonging to the party of Christ. And that's who we belong to. You know, Jesus doesn't want to, you know, necessarily take you away from the party. He just wants to invite you to his party, right? It's a great life being a Christian. And we identify with him. That's who we are. 
Number four, we see something happening here that's so important, and that is that he's establishing Christianity now apart from Judaism. There's a reason why the location is changing from Jerusalem to Antioch. Because without this, there's actually the potential of it becoming simply a Jewish sect. No, it would have an identity of its own because what it is is the completion of the Old Covenant. It's a substance of all those shadows. And so now we see it's established apart from Judaism. And then number five, it would be a place where they would launch out missionaries. And so it's so cool to see what God does in Acts 11, as he's changing the church, salvation, no partiality, such simplicity, and location from Jerusalem to Antioch. But then we close, after the changes in the church, we look at the charity from the church in verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each determined, noticed, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so, you know, we're going to see that they do this after every missionary journey. They collect uh, some help as they would go back to Jerusalem. Interesting, you know, prior to this, they were kind of living almost like communism. Everybody was kind of giving, you know, and sharing. But that didn't work out for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is because there was, there was a famine. Now, Agabus, the prophet, he predicts the famine in advance. And it's not just so that they could know ahead of time what was happening. It was so that they could act on it and they could actually help the people. The Spirit told Agabus that a great famine was to come, and it did during the reign of Claudius Caesar when crops were poor for many years. Uh, Ancient writers mentioned at least four famines, two in Rome, one in Greece, and one in Judea, which is what we're reading about here. And the famine in Judea was especially severe. And the Jewish historian Josephus records that many people died during this famine for lack of money to buy what little food was available. No, but to me, I just think it's so cool, the heart that they have, you know, to give. Sir Sir Winston Churchill, he said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Isn't that cool? You know, when you look at at this message for today, it's a message of salvation, man. It's a message for us to to get busy and and start start working. You know, sometimes people, they'll criticize, you know, uh, Greg Laurie, or they'll criticize, you know, the church or the pastor or the Calvary Chapel or the missions trip or whatever it is, while they themselves are doing nothing to bring people to Christ. I mean, you know, let's make this personal. What are you doing? You know, how are you reaching out? You know, I think that we need to aggressively cooperate with the Holy Spirit 
in order to reach out. Because at the end of the day, what we find is it's not just about him saving me, you know, and putting me in a comfort zone. It's about him saving me so that he can work in me and work through me, huh, to save others. You know, I'm blessed because I know that many of you today are going to, um, you know, you're going to put aside your diet for a day, huh? (laughs) For the people and the purpose and the preaching of the gospel in Cambodia, right? Because you're going to have super nachos uh, today. And I, and I think, generally speaking, that we do have a church that is healthy. You know, we do have a church that has eyes to evangelize. And we need to do what we can to reach the lost. And what we need to do is do what we can, not only to reach out to the lost, but to help out the poor. And so, man, is it so cool? To me, it's so cool that the gospel, it, it, no partiality, and such simplicity, huh? Do you guys have that assurance that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven? Do you guys have that assurance? Seriously. Or you're like, man, I don't want to die because I don't know where I'm going to end up, you know? I mean, going to Israel and seeing the religions of the world and seeing the way that they don't have that, that, that gospel message that we have, it just breaks your heart. As a matter of fact, I want to show you guys one picture I think we have it here that I saw when we were on our way to the, the Western Wall. It was formerly known as a Wailing Wall. Um, there was a, a, a sign there, an announcement and warning. And it says, according to Torah law, entering the Temple Mount area is strictly forbidden due to the holiness of this site. And so if you're, you're on your way, you're going to you know, go into the, whether it be the Western Wall. In this case, it's the Temple Mount. There is a sign, and it's a, it's a sign from the chief rabbi of Israel. And he's saying, you Jews, all you Jews, you can't go to the Temple Mount because if you do, you might actually enter in to the presence of God. Because you guys remember how it was in Judaism? In Judaism, only the high priest could go into the holiest of holies and he could only go in one day a year on the day of Yom Kippur. So imagine that. They still live in that today. They can't go in to the presence of God. But we know, the Bible says in Mark 15, 37 through 38, that when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He breathed his last. And then what happened? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God tore that veil so that we can now enter in to his presence. Even though I look out at you and I think, man, what a motley crew, Lord. (laughs) We fall so short. I fall so short. But I am forgiven. Jesus has died for me, rose again, put my faith in him. And now we can enter into the Holy of Holies. Tell you what, man, it's awesome going to Israel. And I pray that all of you guys go to Israel one day. Maybe, you know, it'll happen later, but but more important than going to Israel is going to heaven. Amen? If you don't have that assurance, if you don't know that that's your future, and I pray that today you would understand there is a God who loves you. He died for you. 
And all you have to do today is believe.